everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Physical fear causes fight, flight, or freeze. Emotional fear, on the other hand, can unravel your sense of self. According to this week's guest, Mike Manukas of Co-Creation Partners, fear induces your compulsion to tell yourself a story. Usually those stories are harmful to productivity, success, efficacy. So how can we write ourselves a new story when confronted with fear? To find out, tune in now. Here it is, episode 560. Mark Manukas, author of Unfear and a uh, longtime pal. We, we knew each other back from D.C. You attended a CrossFit football seminar, which yeah. I was fortunate enough to lead that one. And man, it's been a while. And I saw this, this pop up on LinkedIn. And we love to bring a business-minded guest on Power Athlete Radio once a year to really empower <laughs> The performance of our gym well, owners. Well, if out we there. can find more of them, we'd probably do more of these podcasts. You're right. Well, we're on a mission. So, Mark, I'm sure you have some buddies, but uh, we're going to hand it off to you to introduce yourself. So, it's awesome to have a someone in the gym mix that also is a business minded individual, and we can really speak the language of the gym owner because we know they're all in a fight, especially since the past couple of years. Well, they're a very fear- fearful bunch. Well, we're going to unfear them. them. Uh, I like I like what you did. So, Mark, give, give us a couple minutes about yourself for our listeners, and we'll rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, look, honored to be here, being the uh, the only business guy that you'll have on this year. But, um, yeah, where to start? Um, I, uh, you know, background is, a, is an engineer. Used to be a, a big engineer nerd. I spent some time in the Navy as a civil engineer and a a diver. Um, Didn't feel like uh, the military was going to be a career for me. So I completely shifted gears. This is a theme in my life into management consulting. So I started off at McKinsey and Company, uh, spent eight years there in the operations practice where I kind of learned business, um, you know, got an on-the-job MBA, essentially. And did a lot of work with um, you know lean transformations in organizations, mostly you know large organizations. And um, you know about seven years ago, completely shifted gears, left McKinsey, uh, had a failed tech startup. It was a health and fitness analytics startup that uh, you know tried to give that a shot and completely failed. My wife and I at the time had our our first child, and you know after a year of just uh, not making any money and only putting money into things. Uh, she said, Hey dude, you have to get a job again. So I decided to get back into consulting and I teamed up with a, a guy who I had met at McKinsey and company. His name's Gaurav. He had co-founded co-creation partners and, uh, we teamed up and we've been doing work for the last, um, six plus years on, uh, you know, organizational transformation. And so we co-authored this book, Unfear, and that's all about um, you know the work that we do with organizations. But uh, you know the the core idea there is that fear is one of the largest sources of waste and dysfunction in people's lives and in organizations. And you really can't create any sustainable uh, change or increase in performance and improvement in human well being unless you address that that issue. So that's the uh, the short of it, I'm also a co-owner of CrossFit DC. That's kind of how you and I met Tex as well. So um, I don't run the day-to-day business. I have much more competent people uh, on the ground doing that stuff. But uh, 
I do make sure the, the bills get paid and a uh, huge fan of fitness and uh, what you guys are doing at Power Athlete as well. So happy to talk about whatever your, your listeners would find useful. But it's good to be here. Awesome, man. Yeah, and I appreciate it as well. And some we've traveled the world and met a lot of gyms, both successful and not so much. And the most successful ones, in my opinion, have had the business-minded folk and then the the gym-minded folk working together to run the biz versus a gym owner trying to pretend to be a well, we business found, manager. We found that people that were passionate about fitness tended to not be good business people. Mm. And good business people. People tended not to be very passionate about fitness. So we always found that if there was like uh, the ideal situation was usually like a husband-wife team. Where the wife was like, you know, into aesthetics and you know, coaching people, and whatever, or vice versa, and then uh, an individual on the side who was willing to do more of the back end work, uh, you know, the marketing, being able to push the clients, and you know, packaging and selling and doing all that stuff. It's it's really hard to wear two hats and do it very very well. So, yeah, I yeah. love that. I think the uh, one thing, one experience I've had in my life is just being able to admit I don't know is actually a really <laughs> important. You know, I found that that's I like the greatest uh, form of intelligence when you can wave your hand and be like, no, nope, no fucking idea on this. And I'm totally OK with that because I have this feeling that people, especially in business, have to be able, uh, like a master of everything. Like, oh, my God, I read all these books and now I know everything. And uh, I think I uh, used to be that guy. Yeah. I used You're to be like, that guy. Oh. Actually, I probably still am in various ways. <laughs> I remember I read like the E-Myth and, um, you know, the base camp and all this other virtual business. And then we realized that uh, if you don't get to see people and actually meet to them face to face, they just fucking tend to just drift off. So it's um, I think that there's a lot of bullshit out there, especially in the business world, especially running gyms like. I mean, the turnover is so high that if you're not in this constant acquisition phase of trying to bring in clients, like, I mean, I'm like, like when I owned a gym, I was always had this like nervous feeling that we were like days away from not having a gym because people were going to leave and that I was always in this constant hustle of trying to get more more people in. And I remember one month we got like 50 new clients and it was great because uh, for some reason we lost 60 that month and it wasn't because of wow. anything we were doing, but people like went on vacation. We had injuries. We had people moving. I mean, it was just all these like extraneous circumstances outside of like you guys suck. And like, thank God we had like done a promotion to get all those people in. And they're like, how did you know? And I'm like, I just am fucking scared that like we're like we're going to just end up at zero. And, um, you know, and I, I think a lot of times, you know, people aren't necessarily realizing that like one month in the gym business, one bad month. And uh, that can be the end of you. It can. Yeah. It's not like uh, profit margins are, are super strong. I would be really curious to pick your brain about how you got more people in the gym. That's that's something we we struggle with. Uh, but attrition is big, especially in Washington, D.C. That's one thing stepping into the, the gym business I didn't fully appreciate. You know, I had built this business plan and we had spreadsheets and we're like, oh, yeah, we'll see like this linear growth path from, you know, every month. We'll probably add a couple people. And, you know, after a couple of years, we'll be like this really massive, you know, gym and highly profitable. And in D.C. in particular, there's just a lot of transient people. Yeah. You know, half the people who leave the gym in any given month, they're just moving away from D.C., and that just crushed us. We were constantly having to bring in new people to replenish the people that just just leave because they they move away. And that's it's been really difficult to create a, a larger community. Because and then uh, and, and then you end up like losing your core people. Uh, what we what was interesting for us is we found that um, there it like that there were certain clients that we called rainmakers. There were people that were like uh, you know socially more 
dynamic than other people where once they, we were able to get them into the gym and kind of get them indoctrinated and pull them in, they were like the type of people that were dragging their friends in. And then there were yeah. other people that were, you know, like the lone wolf were like, I don't really have a ton of friends. I'm just going to show up because I'm looking for community. So we were always like had this interesting balance what we called lone wolves and like these like dynamic, uh, just like the straw that stirs the drink type of people. And we had to try to go out and find more of those people. So like if we'd go and like, you know, we didn't, you know, people would come in and want to talk to us about the gym and be like, you're a real social person. Do you guys have a lot of friends? Do you belong to clubs? Like, you know, and we were always looking for those type of people. And then once we found those people, we incentivized them and being like, man, I know it's kind of expensive, but here's how you can train for free. If you can bring us your friends or help us or find us more people. And so like we started leveraging the community in that way. And I mm. think all too often, um, you know, you, you look at like all these, uh, you know, different marketing initiatives. And we found that by far the best was just finding those dynamic people that had a large group of friends. Like my brother, Ed, who trains, who, you know, obviously trains at the gym with us. Uh, he's a lawyer and has a ton of friends and used to like shame other lawyers into coming in. And I think like still to that day at that gym that's I've since sold it years ago. Uh, my brother is by far the greatest research resource pool for bringing in new people into the gym to this day. Cause he's like, People are like, oh, you're in good shape. What do you do? He's like, I train at this gym. You should come with me. And he's pulled so many people in that I always joke that uh, he's like the super spreader for that gym. Yeah. And you almost have to find like those type of super spreaders. Um, whereas we had all these weird lone wolves where it's like, you have any friends? It's like, no, I go to work. I come here and then I go home and eat by myself. And I'm like, ooh, <laughs> uh, I'm <laughs> happy to pay your membership, but you're not my guy. One thing I've seen, one failure mode I've seen with some gym owners, and I travel a lot for my my day job consulting work, and I drop into gyms all over the place, all over the world. And the gyms that seem to be the the best runs or rest, best run are the ones where the gym owner isn't making themselves the center of attention. Sure, they're actually willing to sort of let go and just sort of let other people, you know, be those informal leaders in the community. And all that, but the ones where it's sort of a, a cult of personality, you're just like, man, this gym is, you know, either yeah, not well run or it's just not long, <laughs> not long for the world. Uh, the the other thing, and we do, I mean, geez, we taught hundreds of seminars around the globe and have traveled and seen so many. What I also found that the gyms were that were uh, very successful had a balance of like female and male energy. That if mm -hmm. one was too much on one side, like if it was like too feminine. Uh, you know, like the, you know, the gal who goes in and starts the gym and, you know, next thing you know, there's like laced oilies in the bathroom and like, like it, it was really it, it. But then I went to other gyms where you walk in and you're like, I'm totally going to get ringworm in here. Like <laughs> it's just like, you know, there's like death metal playing and there's skull, you know, like flags on the wall that like haven't been cleaned in a hundred years. So we found that like it has to be gritty enough, but it has to have like enough attention to detail where it's clean. So I used to joke that like, like this enter, like this gym has a good like balance of energy. Like the bathrooms are clean. It's got enough death metal, but like everything's well put together and nothing's broken. I'm not going to kill myself uh, tripping over yeah. like a bunch of crap. So like having like a good balance of energy and um, and then, you know, obviously location was key. We were just at a gym pretty recently and they're like in a back corner and it's super dark and you like you go into the back and you're like, man, this is so dark. So like being able to have like a lot of windows and a lot of light and like it, it just it's interesting. You just kind of notice. And um, I'm sure like, uh, you know, with like consulting, you start just kind of noticing uh, like patterns of successful people or mm -hmm. companies that you walk into. There's like certain patterns that you just observed of like success versus lack of success. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, uh, you know, playing in the NFL, I saw the same thing. The guys that were successful 
did a certain did certain things that the guys that weren't successful didn't. And um, with the gyms, it was pretty interesting when you walk in. I could tell you based on like location and name and what it looked like just walking in the door whether or not it whether or not I thought it was a successful gym. Now you talk to them and they they have the same problem. You might have an incredible gym, all these things, but like if you're in a transient place like DC where people are just turning over, uh, yeah. then you know then there's just constant struggle, and then you almost have to like fire hose it and put like a ton of work in to try to get new people in and. You know, there's all like I, I also think too. Um, the the thing that was wild, and especially where we were, is everybody kind of got into these like Groupon and different type of like uh, training kind of like sales deal, where it's like three months free training or three months at discounts. Uh, the people that did that, their gyms basically just evaporated. Mm. I mean, so it was pretty. They undervalued it. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the problem is, is once they undervalue it, the people that are there are like, "Fuck it, why am I paying so much if these people are so free?" You know, so yeah. that was pretty interesting when we saw like, especially in Costa Mesa, Newport, there was like this war where people were offering discounts and, uh, I was like, we're not doing it. And sure enough to this day, I think we're the only gym or that gym is the only gym left. And I think Ryan Fisher's gym is the only one left. The, the two that never did it. So yeah, Mark I've seen were, that as well. Sorry. Yeah. Mark yeah, and I'm I were sure there's, there's before. a tendency to, um, yeah, to, you know, chase new members and, you know, create those promotions. But yeah, if you, you basically turn off all your existing members, if you, if you undervalue it, which is, which is not good. And I love that idea of the, you know, the, the balance, I think, um, you know, it's tied to some of the, the consulting work I do. I think, you know, leader, the, these businesses need to go their ego. If it's all them and protecting their own ego, um, they create a, an environment that maybe they love. You know, maybe I love those lace doilies, but it's all about me and my needs rather than really tuning into the needs of other people. So I think you naturally create that balance with the let go of your own need to, um, you know, have everything just the way you want it and sort of ask other people how they want it. Yeah. And this, this leads into the book in Unfear. And one of your first steps for Unfear is essentially mindfulness and becoming aware. I love the lead off with the book with the the different fear archetypes and uh both of these are are uh i feel there's fight club and nice club <laughs> yeah. it's great i'm in the nice club of course big nice guy over here <laughs> and uh so you, you lead are with you saying that. i'm not in the nice club and i lead with that <laughs> well he no, won't tell you because kidding. he's in the nice club uh, that's, that's fine. That's what uh, people in the nice club do. But, yeah. but, but if so, you know anything about me, I have no ego about any of this I know. Stuff. I'm just kidding. But uh, I want to explore those because you lead off with these eight archetypes and you don't introduce any, essentially any positive, And you're almost forcing the reader to explore different characteristics of maybe characteristics that they possess. And you're like, oh, crap. And you, I love the, the organization because we have leaders, employees, teams, and organizations. So with each archetype, you present are is archetypes of this uh, this fight club from a leader's perspective, from the employees, the teams, and organizations. So let's go through some of those. Let's lead off with fight club and some of those archetypes, and then the nice club, and then we'll get into the potential uh, positives that possess and lead to an unfeared business. Yeah, fight club, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, the the first thought here is that we're wired for survival. So we have these, you know, naturally have these fight, flight, and freeze responses to threats in our environment. I think most people, you know, sort of, you know, know that and recognize that. The challenge is we're sort of wired for physical survival. 
So for physical threats, it's a very adaptive you know, set of responses. But when there's emotional threats, um, you know, this, this system sort of goes haywire a little bit. We don't necessarily you know, respond in the most effective of ways when we have an emotional threat. So what's the difference between a physical threat and an emotional threat? A physical threat is something that you know, there's some immediate danger to your, your physical body. With an emotional threat, um, you know, there's some story that you're responding to. It's not, there's no immediate threat to your, you know, physical body. It's just, you know, there's a story. Somebody looks at you funny in a, a meeting or across the street and you build up a whole story in your mind about, you know, what that means and what the other person intended and how that impacts you. And so, you know, there's a belief system that underpins these emotional threats. And so over time in our lives, we, we become conditioned to respond to these emotional threats in certain ways. And, you know, people either have, uh, you know, the fight response or the fight club. And that's, you know, these are people that want to stand out and be special. You know, their, their mantra is the best offense is, uh, best defense is a strong offense, right? If they can be on the offense, they'll stay safe and they'll kind of keep these threats at bay. And then the nice club is, are people that, you know, have a general belief that, um, you know, if I'm just liked and, you know, people are nice, I'll be safe in the world. And they can both be, you know, they both serve us in some ways, but they're also dysfunctional in other ways too. And we can kind of go through each of these. Yeah. First one in Fight Club is fault finders. Mm. So looking for problems to tell you how it is, John. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, let's. Uh, it, it, it's, no, it's, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, think about like every team you've ever played on or any corporation you've ever been in. Like there's people that are, you know, like the uh, the chicken littles of the world where, you know, all of a sudden, and I dude, I saw this in the NFL where, um, you know, you bust your ass and you work hard and you know you've done the work and the minute something bad happens, oh, here we go again and just throw up their hands and fucking storm off and be out of it and being like, holy shit, dude. And my joke was I would never want to be in a foxhole with any of you people, <laughs> especially yeah. coaches, like all the time, man. Like they just start losing their mind. I'm like, dude, we've done this preparation. Like trust the process. Like just – like if we just keep going out there and we're doing what we're coached to do, eventually the outcome is positive on a long enough timeline. The problem is, is when you fucking defeat yourself before you ever get out there, you have no chance of victory. Yeah. Like the age old, like it's impossible to go from a good position to a bad position once everything stops moving. Like, uh, yeah. you know, like if you watch in the NFL, like when guys get set on the, on, on the line before the ball snaps, if they're in a bad stance or in like in a poor position, the minute the ball snaps, you can't get to a good position. You have to start in a good position to be able to get to a good position. And it's um, yeah. it's like uh, driving a race car. Like if the seat's not adjusted right and you, you don't have your seatbelt on and your helmet's not this and all of a sudden you fire the car up, you put you, you know, you drop the clutch and all of a sudden you're going 200 miles an hour. At that point, are you going to get your helmet fixed? Are you going to adjust your seat? Are you going to put your seatbelt on? No, you have to make sure all the preparation's done ahead of time so you can go Mach 1. And uh, I, dude, this was so frustrating for me through my entire NFL career seeing people that like, one couldn't start in a good position, so they couldn't get into a good position. And the minute something bad happened, had zero faith that they've done all this work, all this preparation, which almost made me think that maybe they hadn't done the work in the preparation. Could be. And, that's yeah, and, that's the challenge with fault finders, is that they become risk averse because the way in which they they sort of establish power and feel safe is by finding faults, you know, with everyone else and with their their circumstances. And so, you know the problems are the way, you know, them identifying problems, the ways in which they, they just seem superior to other people. 
but it isn't, creates a, a certain risk aversion. Isn't process. like a safety and a lack of risk aversion, isn't that an illusion that doesn't exist? Absolutely. I mean, these, these are, you know, again, the, you know, these threats, these, again, these are, you know, not physical threats, they're emotional threats. So it's all mediated through the lens of our beliefs and assumptions and stories that we were telling about ourselves and, you know, the world. I got so an email it's, it is a loser. Yeah. I, I got an email from a guy uh, the other day for one of the programs that was looking for the safest program. How do I do, what's the program that would give me the most safety when lifting weights? And my response to him is everything's dangerous. The greatest form of safety is being the strongest individual you can. So if you can create the greatest strength and the greatest movement and the greatest execution, you're effectively building in safety for anything that inherently will happen. And so my whole thing was like, if you want to be safe, be strong. So instead of looking for the strong or, or the, the safest program, why don't we figure out how to get you the strongest so that every program is safe, everything is safe. And uh, like it's, um, you know, like I've uh, just all like I, I was thinking through like dozens of examples of things where if I wasn't stronger, I probably would have died. You know, things <laughs> like uh, something falls or something happens or, uh, you know, like uh, moving a treadmill up and down into someone's basement. Yeah, that one, <laughs> like on one leg, lunging it through. Yeah, like like the amount of shit where I've been like, oh, if I wasn't as strong as I was, I would not have made it out of here alive today. And that's happened on numerous occasions uh, where I'm like, whew, or you see, you know, other people struggling and like, uh, like pushing a car out of traffic. Like one of our rules is like if somebody's broken down, because the amount of times that I've seen people broken down and just sitting in the car and then somebody's not paying attention, hits that person and then you have a terrible accident is too many to count. So one of my rules is that if somebody's car is broken down, you have to try to get out and push. And so my deal is I'll get in and like knock on the window. You're right. All right. And I'm going to push you and they'll always go to get out. I'm like, no, you stay in the car. Just fucking steer. I'll push. And we've pushed so many cars out of traffic because one, people aren't strong enough to push their own car out of traffic. And I've owned enough piece of shit cars that have broken down in traffic and had to push them myself that I know this. But like that example, like it, and we, we use that example at work all the time that if somebody's car's broken down and they don't want to get out and push, you got to be like, you're all right. All right. I'm going to push you out of traffic just to try to, you know, prevent other people because fucking dipshits will hit you. Yeah. So, I mean, there's. Uh, like it just was funny that as you were talking, I mean, I, that I got that email from the guy, like what's the safest program, which is the first time I'd ever gotten that email. And I got into this like deep thing cause I'm writing this thing for Chris on the steer training. And I went back in time to read all these, like, um, there was a bunch of like strength books about dudes where like this guy wrote in the twenties and the problems that he's observing in the twenties are the exact problems that we're observing today in the 2021. Like, uh, uh, like lack of fitness, lack of strength, people's poor eating, laziness. Like it's literally like if you just scrubbed 20, uh, 1925 off of it and put in 2021 and changed a little bit of the tone, the yeah. book could be as right today as it was over a hundred years, almost a hundred years ago. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. If you enjoyed this podcast and you're interested in supporting Power Athlete and getting involved with Power Athlete, myself and the crew here in Austin and in the global network, you can do it a few different ways. You can link on shop.powerathletehq.com. You can buy merch, you know, be the hammer, uh, move the dirt, all the really amazing merchandise that we put together. And we're going to have a bunch of cool stuff coming up here at the end of the year for Black Friday uh, that's going to blow your mind. We also have the best training programs in the game. I think the most efficient, most powerful, uh, well thought out, elegant programs that you will find. We're easy to get a hold of. Just go to powerathletehq.com, look for training. It's going to take you over to our best in class partner, Train Heroic, where you can look at 
Jack Street. If you're just trying to put on thick gobs of muscle and you want to get jacked as fuck, Jack Street's your program. We got field strong, train like an athlete, allow us to foster and develop athleticism. That's really our flagship program for trying to make athletes more athletic. We got Bedrock, that beginner program. We got Grindstone for those of you guys that are in the fight. You need a flexible program that lives with you. If you're still into getting your face melted by the dirtiest, nastiest, saltiest wads on the planet, check out Johnny Wad. You're looking for a little bodybuilding, check out Johnny Bod. And if you're looking for a program, if you're in a situation where you go in harm's way, you're looking to kick in doors and take names and break hearts and all that good stuff, check us out at Hammer, the Holistic Athlete Movement Readiness Program that was developed uh, with some of the baddest dudes on the planet. So you can check us out in the programs. If you are interested in getting involved in the Block One Network with Power Athlete, you can first check out academy.powerathletehq.com. You can check out our methodology. And if you want to go that Block One track, travel out here to Austin and prove that you are composed of the metal that we're looking for to be in our Block One Network. So we're easy to get a hold of. You can support us in any way. So if you uh, are enjoying this podcast and really like this content, Find a way to get involved. Giving you a couple different options. We're looking forward to seeing you. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing how how sticky some of those beliefs are. You know, there's still a lot of people that I come across, and they they think that lifting weights is dangerous. Uh, and I'm like, well, <laughs> compared to what, right? Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's a scary. Uh, we're we're living in a scary world, and I think it's because I mean, that's what was so great with the name, like unfear. Like, I think fear is such a great motive or sorry, is such an interesting factor in people's lives. Like how many decisions are fear based? Um, I mean, in the the thing which I was fascinated on this when uh, when Chris was like, hey, we're having you on. He sent us the book. Um, like as you go in as a consultant to go into work is fear like, you know, this like, uh, you know, the guy hiding in the closet in the dark corner. Like, are you searching for the fear in the room? where like the reason that companies are bringing you in is for all these other reasons. And it comes down to people making fear-based decisions or fear of failure, fear of success, fear of, uh, you know, being blamed for something or just fear of doing your job and maybe being successful. Yeah, absolutely. And we can kind of, you know, yeah. And this is probably a good place to reflect on, you know, is fear a good thing or a bad thing? You know, a lot of people think fear is either, you know, good in some ways because it, it drives you hard to perform and it actually does, you know, fear works in, in some ways. Uh, then there's other people who think that fear is, you know, a bad thing. It's something that you need to, you know, avoid and sort of eliminate. Um, but, you know, to me, fear is neither good or bad. It's, just, it's part of the human experience. And, you know, if we see it as a good or a bad thing, we sort of get stuck in the, you know, these sort of dysfunctional patterns, you know, the, the fear archetypes, the fight clubs or the, the nice club archetypes. Um, but if we can see fear as a, a cue for learning and growth, it actually opens up all kinds of new possibilities for us. You know, if you're feeling fear in a given moment, it's a signal that, Hey, maybe there's something I have to learn here. You know, maybe there's something I need to investigate further, or there's some you know new way I need to think through this decision. So, um, you know, seeing fear is useful in that way is, is actually the key here. Yeah. We get bring into as consultants with different, uh, strength and conditioning, opportunities and there's coaches that then that are employed by said company that brings us in to then come out and listen and be a part of it or at least have a conversation with us and others that were hiding away in the office and i found that personally fascinating but at the same time maybe they feared oh these guys are gonna take their job man i um it uh like the 
the thing which is fascinating about fear, and we had Tony Blauer on the podcast, which is you know his big whole, uh, really what he's coaching right now is this idea of fear. And um, what's wild is his contention is that most of the world makes their decisions on a daily basis by the minute based on fear. So like I'm going to do this out of fear instead of like I I kind of like view fear a little bit as a, like almost like a cliff. Like you know it's there. Uh, if I get up to the edge, I can see over. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, jump off the cliff unless I had a parachute, you know, like it exists. Like it's kind of like skiing, you know, there's a cliff, like I'm not going to slow down. <laughs> like I know it's there, so I have to be conscious of it and I'm not going to do anything stupid. Uh, so it, it's kind of, um, I'm just amazed at, at how many people actually live their life trying to mitigate fear instead of realizing like it's going to be there regardless of how you act. But if you, if your only reaction is in response to fear, it's usually going to be or, I mean, uh, many times going to be not advantageous for you. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Sorry, still getting getting over this bad cold, so I, I might be coughing here in the background. But, yeah, one thing we do with our, our clients is we walk them through this, this exercise on the, the comfort zone. And we ask them to reflect on, you know, what does it feel like to be in the comfort zone? And a lot of people are like, yeah, it feels good, amazing, and, you know, positive. But if you stay in your comfort zone too long, it's, you know, it's kind of, bored and stale, but how do you feel when you step out of your comfort zone? There's this large, you know, range of, of emotions and experiences people have when they're out of their comfort zone. And what defines our comfort zone are our fears. That's a big insight that, that people walk away with is that, you know, our comfort zone is fundamentally defined by our fears, uh, but only significant learning and growth happens outside of our comfort zone. And so if we're constantly trying to mitigate fear and avoid it and, and, you know, do all that stuff, we're actually limiting the, the learning and growth that we can experience in life. And that could be in a physical sense as well. I think that's, that's absolutely true in, you know, the fitness world, but it's also true in just the, the world of, you know, our, our minds, you know, and just the, the rest of our life as well. Uh, you know, what's fascinating is uh, how quickly preconceived notions and, and fear attaches in the fitness world. Like uh, it's um, like, I'll just use a classic example. Uh, like if you go back and look at any of the ancestral evolutionary stuff with, uh, you know, like Rob Wolf or, you know, um, nice. Michael Rose, I mean, this idea of like, you know, we didn't evolve because, or we didn't evolve to eat meat. We evolved because we ate meat and we understand like animal based proteins. I mean, Rob has books and we have tens of thousands of clients that improve their health by getting back to like a more ancestral kind of paleo-esque, like, you know, uh, a real food diet. And all of a sudden, there'll be like one cook study that has like one citation that was done on seven people in some obscure place. That's like, oh, uh, you know, meat uh, protein raises mTOR. So mTOR is related to cancer. So meat causes cancer. And all of a sudden, you'll see it on the front page of everything. You know, meat causes cancer, meat causes cancer. And all these people that have had a life change, that have seen it, not within their blood work, within the training, everything, all of a sudden, like freak out, like, oh, my God, meat must cause cancer. And uh, yeah. I'll get people hit me up and I'll be like, wait a minute. So what you're saying is that the body of work that you've done and everything that you've read that one dynamic headline pushed out pushes you in this direction. And it's almost like uh, like that part just blows my mind where how quickly people are influenced by just you know things that are so far outside the rails, even when they've done something and known it to be positive. Yeah. Well, our minds, the way our minds work is we take limited data points and we create this, you know, story that makes sense. So it's, you know, one study um, can become this whole narrative in our minds about, you know, it's bad and all that. Like our, our brains are not really 
um, liking uncertainty. So we're constantly creating the story in our head that gives certainty to the world. But uh, it's important to recognize that, right? So well, we don't get taken in by these these partial data points. Why is that? I mean, because uh, uh, like this is, um, you know, Chris is a big conspiracy theorist, especially a big flat earther. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy <laughs> theorist. So but. Uh, I did uh, actually wasted probably, man, when I say seven or eight hours, like maybe longer, diving into like the whole mindset of like the conspiracy theorists. Because I mean, uh, you know, eventually like some of them are wacky, like the flat earth. And I was kind of fascinated, yeah. like why people attach to this. And there, I read a really interesting passage that the conspiracy theory, no matter how wacky certain people, it allows them to attach order to the world, that there's somebody, even if it's nefarious, that has some master plan uh, that they are part of and there's some end goal, but it actually there's a plan that makes sense to somebody is actually a greater feeling of comfort than knowing what the true fucking existence is of chaos and this idea of like, you know, uh, like, you know, like, uh, I'll just like, like the government, for example, oh, there's some government conspiracy. It's probably just a lot of really incompetent people doing a lot of stupid shit, trying to benefit themselves. That's all fucking it up. And like, uh, that's a, a harder thing to wrap around people's head that this is just a level of incompetence that we can't understand. More so than there's like some really smart, like, you know, Dr. Evil guy behind the screens, you know, rubbing his fingers together with some nefarious plan. And that was uh, the greatest explanation I read of the flat earth and some of these like really fringy conspiracies is that like it allows people comfort to know that there's some master plan, even if it's, you know, them being lied to or whatever, but that there's somebody behind the curtain, the proverbial Elon Musk who's pulling the strings. And I was like, holy shit, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's. That's a scary deal. Well, that's, it's a, that, well, I think it's a yeah. coin. It's a spinning coin. John. I think you. No, I think it's a. It's a great point. I think you nailed it on the head. I think we we crave, and it's you know, I think it's evolutionary in some ways. We crave uh, a degree of comfort and certainty, and you know, people tend not to uh, embrace that. Right? We we tend to shy away from our fears because we have that survival bias. We have that negativity bias, and we're, you know, we're we're it's easy for our brains to latch on to stories that sort of make sense of the world um, in some way and give us a, a sense of, of certainty. Absolutely. Uh, there was a, um, and the article I read uh, where the guy discusses went back and was actually uh, talking about all these like creation myths. So they were talking about like, uh, you know, like the Incas and went through, they all had like a similar creation myth, but they're, I mean, if you looked at it, they were all kind of generally similar. But they, every culture had gone back and created this idea of like how creation happened. One of them was like, a, 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 you know, a dragon emerged from, um, you know, a mountain and blew fire and this. And then like the, uh, you know, like the what was like the Norse mythology is that the, the solar system is just the skull of like a huge giant that got its head cut off. I mean, but like they, they were all different, but there was actually a creation myth for every single culture on how it happened. And his thing was like. Even people that were, you know, we don't consider, you know, uh, modern, let's say even primitive people, this piece is hardwired within us to search for some form of order, to create some form of information that allows other people to understand why we're here and more importantly, like the bigger scheme of everything or like the Absolutely. bigger goals. And uh, that that one kind of blew my myth or uh, um, blew my mind in terms of like, as you go back and you read like the creation myth, whether it be the Bible, whether it be Norse mythology, uh, Sanskrit, I mean, every culture has these 
and the idea is that like this is hardwired in us to find this level of like these are the steps this is how we got here this is why we're here more so than like I mean, because I think the understanding that like, you know, and you'll hear people be like, oh, this is probably just some really just amazing accident. People can't even wrap their head around that piece. So it's. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. If you think of us as humans, we have these amazing superpowers of imagination and language. It means unlike any other animal in the, the animal kingdom, we are not constrained by our ability. And any other you know, animal, it's, you know, they're just, they're driven by biological urges and, you know, they don't create cultures and societies, but because we have ima- imagination and language as our superpowers, we create these cultures. You know, we can imagine a future that doesn't yet exist through the stories that we share with people and, and all that and create something new and amazing. The challenge is it cuts both ways. <laughs> it can be, you know, very sure. positive and can help us create, you know, new things, but it also gets us to believe in conspiracy theories and sort of, you know, create stories that, you know, clearly just aren't true in that sense. And so it can lead us, lead us astray. So, uh, you know, the game for anybody who's looking to learn and grow is how do you use your superpowers in a way that's, you know, really helps you learn and grow and be more effective. So when you go into companies and they bring you in as a consultant, um, you know, it's probably because, well, I don't know. I mean, is it twofold? Is it because they're having problems and they have to reach out to you guys to come in to try to like fix a problem like, uh, you know, the, like bring it in the bobs from uh, office <laughs> space? Uh, or is it companies that are running really well that are looking to take the next step and are like, you know, everything's going well. It's kind of like, uh, you know, we had John Howard on the podcast who is our relationship um, expert. And he hit a funny point where he's like, if people call me to do marriage counseling after everything's already fucked up, my chance of success is very low. If people call me into marriage counseling when everything's going really well and they're really happy, he's like, I have the ability to extend their marriage, marriage and be able to do some amazing things. So I always wonder when like an outside consultant, like a McKinsey gets brought in, is it because, I mean, I, I imagine it's probably shit's going wrong. We need to figure this out. If everything's going, then everybody just kind of was like, Ooh, everything's going great. But I wonder if it's like the intelligent person. It's like, everything's going well, but how do we take this to the next step? We're probably gonna have to bring in some people smarter than us to help us understand our business. Yeah, absolutely. I love the Bob's reference, by the way. Yeah. What exactly would you say you do here? (laughs) (laughs) I'm always self-conscious when I'm doing interviews with clients to not, not come across as a Bob, but yeah, I think, I think think you you have companies. Yeah, I think you have to come in as a Bob's when he's like Michael Bolton. He must worship the whole collection. That's right. Yeah, (laughs) no talent, ass clown. I love that. One of my favorites. That is a classic. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, it it really depends. I think you know any organization and you know leadership teams. They you know some are high performing already and recognize that they want to take things to the next level and they're just you know they're actively thinking about how they do that. Um, Other companies and leadership teams are saying, shoot, something's gone wrong here. And we, we need some, we need some help to, to figure it out. Um, I think it really just depends. And I, you know, we end up working with, you know, companies in both of those, those categories, but I think it's limiting. I think there's, you know, some people who are maybe not deep into the business world are like, well, why would you need to bring in people that help you? Because you should already know how to do everything. But um, I think that's a symptom of, you know, not wanting to say, I don't know. Actually, some of the, the best leaders I know are people who say, look, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know what, what all the answers are. I, you know, I could use a different perspective here. I could use some help. And you know, for a lot of the work that we do on, on culture change, it's not like um, you know, we 
we do this across industries with, you know, um, all the time helping leadership teams and companies improve their culture. So we have the pattern recognition on those, those um, topics, you know, most leaders and organizations, they haven't seen this, you know, 40 times and they've maybe gone through one or two different transformations. So it's, I think it's always good to, you know, call people who have the pattern recognition and can help you do things that you maybe haven't done as much yourself. Yeah. The cool thing about the book I mentioned earlier, it's the perspective on all these archetypes from leader, employee, teams, and organizations. From experienced leadership books, they only allow that single perspective of you're managing people, leading people, sometimes leading up, but then it's it's almost this, this first-person experience. And here you're able to identify different characteristics to recognize at different levels to then bring that awareness for change. Yeah, absolutely. And we, one thing we talk about is in order to create a, uh, a real transformation, just sustainably improve performance in organizations, you have to do that inside out. You know, I think we were talking about earlier, you know, how do you create that movement? How do you, uh, you know, uh, grabbing the, the people in your gym who are those informer, informal influencers and who are really socially connected? That's what we actually do in companies. We take the, you know, the formal leaders, but also uh, a bunch of informal leaders to create a, a movement within an organization. And so we start with the individuals and their mindsets and get that to cascade out into uh, how people interrelate with each other and build trust and, you know, the team dynamics, and then cascade that out into how organizations uh, perform and, you know, all the things that you can do on the outside in an organization to include process improvements and communications and, and all the other things that people associate with organization. So you have to work at all those levels, starting with the individual in order to create real system level change. All right, let's, let's fight through the rest of these arch archetypes. Is this another awful pun? Uh, it's an awkward transition, <laughs> which Chris I've embraced. Is, uh, Chris, so, uh, he's, he's taken this like awkward transition pun thing to the point <laughs> of almost like, um, I'm slightly uncomfortable by it and I don't get uncomfortable by anything. Well, this awkward humor we were talking about earlier, I'm just embracing it. Ah, uh, so you've been watching way too much Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, the new season's oh, out. Yeah. It's great. Great show. <laughs> it's great, great show. <laughs> uh, well, we we mentioned Fault Finders, as John is pointing out right now yeah. and, and demonstrating that archetype to a T <laughs> yeah. about my transitions. Yeah. Then we have... I'm just helping... <laughs> I know. I'm just helping you. I mean, the only person with a more awkward transition is Caitlyn Jenner. hey oh, And... Uh, the controllers, competitors, yeah. perfectionists. Let's stick yes. with Fight Club, and then we'll jump to the nice. Yeah. Club. So the controllers are people that you know. These are micromanagers. Oh, these God. are, um, you know, all the decisions need to be made by me if I'm a controller. So that's you know, I think a lot of people can identify with that, and we all have a little bit of controller in us if we're if we're honest about it. Uh, we have the competitors. So these are people that, um, you know, they see everything as a win-lose dynamic. And I've actually, most of my life, for instance, I've, I've found myself, you know, falling back into this archetype. I didn't always associate it with, you know, having it be a fear-based response, but, you know, at the core of it, um, I'm definitely afraid of uh, failing. And so in order to, you know, feel safe, I just applied myself to whatever it was, sports and school and, um, you know, getting promotions. So everything was a win-lose dynamic, but I can never ask for help. So that's sort of the, the competitor 
um, archetype. And then the perfectionists, you know, these are the, the people, the organizations that set extremely high standards and have to dot every I, cross every T, and those standards are never, ever met. You know, it just becomes extreme. So that's, that's the fight club, the fault finders, controllers, competitors, and perfectionists. Is, uh, is it, I mean, I would definitely say I have a fear of failure. Um, I, uh, like I've known it my entire life. Uh, I think it, was, it wakes you up in the morning, forces you to go out and, and do things that maybe other people wouldn't. And, uh, you know, I know we've had people on the podcast, uh, a couple other, I can't remember who else we've had that have, we've talked about that, that mindset is not always necessarily a positive one. But I think as long as a fear of failure isn't causing paralysis. So there's two types of fear of failure. Uh, there's the type of fear of failure where, like you said, you go out and you compete and you do everything and it's why you work hard and it allows you to still go out. Then there's a fear of failure where uh, it's like paralysis where it prevents you from doing things. And uh, I don't know if either of them are healthy, but I think that the people that I've run into that are very successful all have this fear that, uh, you know, I don't have a fear of losing. I just don't want, like, I have a fear of failure more than a fear of losing. If that makes sense. You can kind of delineate between yeah. Yeah, we all, it's, you know, it's, we all have these common fears, you know, whether it's fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of not belonging, fear of being alone. Um, you know, these fears in and of themselves are not a problem. It's more, you know, the stories we create around these fears and how they show up as patterns of behavior. So there's an element of competition, for instance, that is actually pretty good, right? It gets you up out of the, you know, the bed in the morning. It, it helps you strive and achieve things that, you wouldn't achieve otherwise. Um, you know, it's one reason why I love working out in a CrossFit gym is because I can look over and see someone who's beating me and that, that pushes me to work a little bit harder myself. The challenge is it can become dysfunctional at times. So the question everyone has to ask themselves uh, is, yeah, hey, is this pattern of behavior serving me? You know, is it helping me achieve the goals that I want in life or are they holding me back? And for me, you know, that, that ultra competitive drive was preventing me from asking for help or cultivating mentors and, and, and other things. So in my life, I, at one point, at, you know, when I was working at a big uh, consulting firm, I looked around and realized I was just completely alone and isolated because I never asked for help. I had to do everything myself. I never asked for a mentor. I felt like that was, you know, cheating in a way. Um, so this pattern, this competitive, you know, pattern wasn't serving me in that sense. And Mark, you had a line in the book, any strength overplayed can become a weakness. Mm -hmm. So it's not that these are necessarily bad things, but if they start to constrain you or, or control. Or crutch. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Moving on to the nice guy club. Like this uh, half of the table over here. Oh, <laughs> I'm burning myself here because avoiders, sticklers, minions, and likables. Real likable. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he knows you. Chris. So, I mean, he knows you're not that likable. What? He knows you, I'm a stickler for movement. I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know how likable. Uh, what do you guys think? Let's take a poll here in the room. How many <laughs> guys liked Chris first day? Like, is he a, like an instantly endearing, likable person? Uh, one out of ten? Yeah. Like a one and a half, two? I think he's a 7.5. You're not, a, well, you're not that likable a person. <laughs> Uh, for the record, Charles said 10 of 10. All right. Well, <laughs> well, the irony with all these archetypes is the things we fear the most are the things that we, so, you know, maybe perhaps, uh, you know, I won't put words in your mouth, Tex, but one of your fears is, you know, not being loved. Oh, big time. Uh, I will. I, uh, 
Jesus, it's like this guy knows you or something. I mean, I Chris is just like uh, we're still friends, right, Shooter? <laughs> like he's like one of those big teddy bears at the mall. He's just like arms open, just hoping every little kid comes and hugs him. Oh, so cute. Yeah, it's good, Chris. I'm avoiding that. So next, <laughs> well, we got. Yeah, let's get into the avoiders. Avoiders. Yeah, yeah. So avoiders. These are people that just shy away from conflict. Right. There's they see you know this excessive risk in any any conflict or any any challenge to what's going on, and they just avoid it. Yeah, they prefer to play it safe and do nothing than than take action. Uh, with the minions, uh, you know, these are people who their only customer is the boss, right? They're constantly looking upwards saying, hey, what does the boss want? And they'll do whatever the boss says. So those are the minions. Sounds like the US military. Can be. Yeah. yeah. There's there's elements of it. You know, I think there's there's yeah, hierarchy becomes dysfunctional when the purpose is to serve the hierarchy rather than to create structures that allow people to to shine. And that happens in certainly parts of the military, yeah. No questions. Wow. Then we have the sticklers. You know, these are our cultures that believe uh, or people who believe that, um, you know, obsessively following the rules is the way you stay safe. So if somebody throws a rule book at you, you're likely dealing with a stickler. And then the likables are like text, right? They're, they're constantly trying to be nice and, you know, um, you know, smooth over conflict and, you know, get other people to, to love them. Mark, that's a great shirt you're wearing. Big fan. <laughs> awesome. CrossFit DC. Yeah. Oh, uh, man. I think, uh, I mean, would you say that uh, that people fit into one or are there shades of everything at certain people? Like, I yeah. mean, like, like I know with the archetypes, like I've met people that are, you know, in every one of these and I've met people that are combinations of everything. I think what's, what's hard, especially in, in organizations that are large, is you have people that are constantly evolving and like you'll have one person who's like constantly changing their colors where like they're, they're like this with one person in one situation. And, uh, I think at least in my experience, uh, I like consistency. Like if this is who you are, great. Then we can work around it. The problem is if you're constantly a moving target, then it's, then I struggle with that. Yeah. So it, it, so the, the, with these archetypes, these aren't personality types. We're not fixed in any of these. So for anyone, uh, you know, these will change by context, uh, you know, could be, you know, where you're working or who you're hanging out with, you know, different archetypes will express themselves at, at different times. And because these patterns of behaviors are driven by the stories that we have around, you know, the, the threats or fears that we have or see, um, we can change those stories. You know, we said the superpowers we have, imagination and language, well, hey, we can, we can create new stories for ourselves and we can, we can reframe um, anything that we're experiencing in life. So, you know, we can show up in a, a different way. So we shouldn't, you know, one thing we try to teach people is you're not fixed in any one of these. You should reflect on whether or not it's, it's serving you. And if it's not, you can change it. Do, uh, when you go in and work with companies, um, do you find that people, uh, are aware enough to know that they fit within these archetypes? Like, Oh God, I'm doing this or more so like, uh, or people or it's more subconscious. And then when you point it out and they're like, holy shit, this is who I am. Or yeah, it's a framework there, that's helpful. A, or is there like a fear of like, if I drop my mask and really show who I am, I'm probably going to get fired maybe. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that we do when we go into to clients is we, we help create that safe environment where people can drop the mask. Um, 
you know, so a lot of the work we do um, is in the context of workshops, for instance, where, you know, we sit around in, you know, circles, almost like an AA meeting, you know, people joke and sort of laugh nervously when they, they walk into um, some of our workshops initially, but it's, you know, we're purposely trying to create a situation where people can actually be pretty open and honest with themselves and other people. But I would say for the most part, just about everyone uh, quickly identifies with one or more of these, these archetypes. And we also, we use survey, survey tools and to help people understand, you know, their own patterns and what people think of them as well. So that, that helps create that level of awareness. Do you find that uh, most people are pretty self-aware or are they just kind of like uh, a little oblivious where I didn't realize this is who I was. And then they have this kind of like realization moment. Yeah, I think it, I think it depends quite a bit. I think uh, it's mixed. I think, you know, some leaders are quite self-aware and, you know, we, we run like 360, surveys where people do a self-assessment and then, um, you know, other people, whether they're higher than, than them in the organization or peers or employees, and they provide feedback. And every once in a while, there's a good, you know, match between a self-assessment and other people's assessment. But there's also oftentimes a big difference too. Now that I think about it, you know, there's um, a lot of people see themselves as better um, than what, what other people see them as. Um, what's the statistic? You know, 90% of people think that they're above average intelligence, something like that. I think we, we see that a lot where people think they're coming across, you know, more, more effectively to other people than other people see as well. That's cool. Basically, get uh, you as an employee, take this survey, and then your teammates take the do same the same survey against you, you, and then we see how far this gap is. And then what do we do? Then we put it up on like a big board and humiliate them in, in like well, a public I'll, fashion. Yeah, I'll tell you this. The uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, that'll just create more That's, fear. Yeah, in, in, exactly. uh, yeah. Quick story. College athlete. My I was a. I had my coach was a first year college coach, so it came from jump from high school to college, and he was trying different systems. And one system, like he was changing every week. That was essentially the the challenge, um, but. We had to grade our teammates, and then we would post the grades like a, a college professor up on the wall, and essentially like created some some fights and some rifts in the team because people would put their bias against another dude into it versus their actual performance. So that was an attempt taken from another coach that didn't necessarily fit our uh, our work. Sounds unquote, like the competitor architect at play there. Uh, uh, maybe it it didn't last long. Maybe yeah. if we stuck to it, we'd actually like break that curve of bias and stop beating the shit out of each other in practice. But <laughs> well, I, I found that in most team organizations, if you're winning, people will let a lot more shit slide. <laughs> like, that, that was not our it, no, but I mean, like, like, like when everything's working and it's successful, there's things that like people are like, uh, okay, I can deal with X. And uh, I, I've seen this in not only in, in business, but also in sports teams. Mm-hmm. If you're winning and everything's going in the good direction, it's amazing what people will put up with because everybody's yeah. moving, everybody's successful, everything's working in the right direction. We're all winning. And, uh, you know, however you define winning in the NFL, it's based on wins and losses. Let's say in companies, it's, uh, you know, dollars at the end of the month. You're moving in the right direction. And all of a sudden, when things, you go losses or something happens, then all of a sudden this stuff comes up. And, uh, you know, those become like, uh, you know, fucking splinters where all of a sudden now people are less willing to 
just kind of put up with stuff. I mean, look at like in the NFL, for example, look at, um, you know, Odell Beckham Jr. and this whole deal that's going on with him. If they were fucking 10 and 0 or 7 and 0 or whatever it is, he wouldn't have any problem with it. But all of a sudden they start losing. And now all of a sudden these problems become more inherent because now this losing, I'm not getting my, uh, you know, what I'm, what I deserve. And it's just amazing. You can really see teams and people's character, not in the success, but in the loss. Yeah. So I love that. I love that. Yeah. We see that. I see that in organizations all the time where success hides a lot of problems and people are willing to sweep a lot of, you know, bad stuff under the rug until it's just, you can't ignore it anymore until yeah. it becomes an issue. And so I think I, it's absolutely better to, you know, understand those problems, even during the good times, even when you're successful, especially when you're successful to surface, you know, some of the patterns that may not be really serving your, you know, yourself or the team and, and address those as, as you go. That's a much better time to work on it than when stuff's falling apart. Do you find um, uh, like that companies have to bring somebody in like you, like an outsider to be able to point the light on this? Like, or are there companies that can self-assess? Like I sometimes think like when you're too close to it, um, you know, like it, like, like all too often, I feel like when you're in the fight or you're too close to it, it's hard to kind of have perception of what's going on around you and that it, it's, you know, and, and sometimes it's a great benefit to bring somebody in from the outside that has a fresh perspective, that doesn't have any biases, that doesn't have history or anything, that can look at things subjective and like point out holes that you might potentially have. I mean, I think about this in the training space all the time. You know, people bring us in uh, and, you know, we have no preconceived notions. We've never met these people. We go in and we, we're able to just observe what we see and give them immediate feedback on, you know, it's not as if we've worked with them for five or six years and I see them every day and I know their wife and this and this, like they have a, uh, or, you know, husband, whatever. And, um, you know, there's all this kind of preconceived notion in time and all these, you know, uh, social bonds and all that, but just being able to come in fresh with, uh, no influence or perspective and being able to give people an honest feedback. I think it's, uh, at least when we go in and do consulting stuff, I think that's the superpower where it's like, I don't know these people. I don't know anything else that's going around here. You're bringing me in to just look at this and this is what I'm observing. Now, whether or not you like it or not, that's up to you, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I see. And that's, yep. uh, that's something interesting, especially with the group we just worked with. Um, you know, these are the problems that we see. These are the injuries. This is how you're managing it. This is how you're not managing it. These are the things you need to be successful. Now, fucking the prescriptions written run out there and, you know, go hundred miles an hour. Whereas I think sometimes the people that are so close, uh, things get lost in the, in the, in the fray. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, that's why it's, it's helpful to have a coach or, you know, to have that, that outside perspective. It is hard for us to self-assess sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're in it, you know, we, again, we kind of view the world through the lens of our mental models and our beliefs. And so if you're within in organizations like that, um, uh, you know, the story of, you know, one fish turns to the other and says, how's the water today? And the other fish says, what's water? Right. You were just, we're, we're constantly swimming in, you know, water and we just, we don't see what's around us. So having an outside, you know, coach or organization come in and just, you know, provide that, that unfiltered uh, point of view is super helpful, but it takes a level of trust as well. I mean, it's, you know, you can't just come in and expect that you'll be listened to. I think building trust with, with clients is, is quite important. This leads us to our wise club. Fight Club, Nice Club, Wise Club, and you've you've name dropped a couple of these coaches, trust builders, seekers, and achievers. So the unfear archetypes that now lead and help lead to an organization 
that is unscared. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What's sort of the counter to, you know, being stuck in this fight response or this, this nice response um, it's, you know, showing up with a degree of wisdom. So the achievers are, are people or organizations who can, you know, create real stretch, uh, but not do it through fear. You know, they, they create stretch by inspiring other people and helping them see what's possible rather than, than scaring them. So you've got the, the achievers, uh, you've got the seekers that are constantly, um, you know, they're not the fault finders saying, Hey, there's always a problem. You know, they're not nitpicking, but they're saying, look, we can always be better. Let's always, you know, there's always another step we can take. There's always something we can do. That's, that's a little bit better. So those are the seekers. The coaches are people that are really good organizations that are really good at developing other people. So they don't do it from again, a, you know, a nitpicky place or, you know, tearing people down, they're constantly building people up and helping them step out of their comfort zone and, and grow. And then you have the trust builders that are really good at uh, building teams with a high levels of trust. They're not constantly being nice. They're not shying away from conflict, but they're using conflict constructively to create trust and higher performance. Sweet. So how do we ignite these transformations? <laughs> Yeah. So one thing we, we do is um, we help people rather than just saying, look, you're, you fall in one of these fear archetypes or multiple, and then, you know, there's a new pattern of behavior. What we help people do is um, understand how fear is driving them and help them, you know, choose different stories, different interpretations for what's going on. So how do you, how do you embrace, you know, new mindsets and then let the, you know, these unfear archetypes kind of emerge almost, uh, you know, more naturally and organically rather than trying to just copy a pattern of behavior, but never really addressing the, you know, the underlying um, story you have about your fear. Do you find like uh, these fear archetypes extend past work, like into their personal lives? Or do you find that like uh, in one place you might be the nitpicker, but in another place you might be this? Or is it, do you find that people wear different hats in different situations? Or is it kind of like, the mindset that people carry over from not only let's say their personal lives and the way they deal with their families or fitness, whatever, it just extends into the work. And sometimes when, you know, you come in as a consultant, you help somebody understand this and change the narrative that it ends up having like a cascading, like downstream effect towards other things. We hear all the time how, you know, the work that we've done with, with people impacts their life in a very positive way. So it's not just the, their life at work, but when you start to, you know, think about how fear has been driving you and how you can shift out of that or, you know, make, make different choices. Um, it impacts a lot of different things. Yeah. It impacts, you know, your performance at work and how you get along with your colleagues, but it also impacts or can impact how you show up with your family and your friends and um, all kinds of things, how you, how you, you know, pursue fitness in your life. And absolutely. Um, so we hear that all the time that it's, you know, all these patterns are inter interrelated, right? We, we're conditioned over our whole life to show up in a certain way. Yes, it's context driven, but it's, you know, we're, we're sort of have these, these patterns and habits that we've become blind to. And when you can start to unwind these, they have a you know, big impact in many areas of your life. No, it's uh man, it's, it, it's pretty fascinating that, um, you know, and I, like, uh, as you're talking, I keep trying to go back to like, uh, you know, differences, not only like in, you know, in entrepreneur, but also as a teammate and like, you know, doing, you know, my previous life. And it was pretty amazing. Like, uh, the, there were very few guys that were, you know, like honest, hardworking, uh, like really just dedicated to it that also didn't 
have the similar like effect in their families. So like if uh, it, mm. it was rare to see a guy who was like hardworking and honest and just like gave everything that all of a sudden like walked out the door, slipped into a different outfit and like became like uh, just a different, you know, like it, it like, you know, alternate lifestyle. I mean, um, I don't want to mean alternate lifestyle, but like just like kind of like sleazy and had, like it, it was weird. Like the guys that like, you know, had these like really just dark existence, like it just kind of like there was everything kind of permeated like the guys that were, you know, honest and hardworking tended to be more like that in their own personal lives. Yeah. And so makes what, sense. What, what was wild was that, uh, um, you know, like I can think around like sitting around, like talking to teammates and hearing stories and whatnot and being like, Ooh, and then all of a sudden like seeing things like in, in how they were. And I, I just like, it's never just cut and dry. Like, like, uh, like the, you know, like who you are as an individual, like permeates in everything you do. If you're, you know, hardworking in your personal life, you're usually pretty hardworking and, and, um, you know, like who you are in your, uh, in your work life. So it just kind of makes sense that, um, that if you could almost establish and try to explain to people, Hey, these are the things you're doing. This is the, uh, you know, this is who you're identifying as that might be hurting your growth. Then all of a sudden being able to take that into a personal realm makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. If anything, I think I see a lot of people, you know, maybe it's probably different, you know, and, you know, with your sports background, but a lot of people show up at work and hide a lot of, you know, who they are out of fear, right? They just, they, they're not really showing up and expressing their, their full potential. They're just, they're kind of going, going with the flow and, um, and oftentimes they're miserable for it. So they may go home with their families and they're, you know, they're who they are and, you know, they're not feeling, um, you know, restricted in, in that sense, but they go to work and they kind of put on this, this different face and they're just trying to, you know, survive in that context. Um, but it's, that's exhausting for a lot of people. I think that is absolutely exhausting. Yeah. That was Luke, uh, who was living his personal life and partying, having a good time and then showing up and doing his nine to five at, uh, well, uh, pre let's, yeah, pre, pre power athlete. Yeah. Pre power athlete. But I remember, uh, Luke who, who has since uh, moved on, but one of our guys, uh, when I hired him, he was working for some uh, like parts manufacturer in the Midwest, and was like showing up to this corporate gig, and was just out out every night, just killing it. And I uh, would have to like, you know, like oh, I got to go in there and try to pretend that I'm somebody I'm not. And I think after a couple of years, he was like, uh, I either got to make a change or pull the ripcord. Um, and I mm-hmm. think like there's that feeling of like, I just don't know if I can continue to live this lie. And I I wonder how many people are just like coming in trying to hold it together. But I, think it's I mean, there's yeah, there's so few of us. Like, I, personally, I could never live in an office space cubicle environment. And like, so much of of our personality is in work and work in personality. Like, uh, and then you have this question in here, Mark, that I think is appropriate time for, and that it's inspire and pull reality towards your vision, or do you drag your vision down to your reality? And that was something that jumped out to me. And I immediately thought of our old pal Luke Summers, and then the the cubicle lifestyle. Oh yeah, never sought that out, no matter how big the paycheck. But like, what's the expectation for people to just suck it up or pursue their dream of or being creative? Or, or there's an idea that maybe one day they won't be in the cubicle if they keep working hard, and then you get the corner office and you're not in the cubicle anymore. Like that's what I always thought. Like if you work at a company like that where you're stuck in a cubicle. Like, is the idea that I'm going to be in this cubicle and this is my life for the next 30 years? I know that's what Luke told me. He's like, I was scared to death 
that like I was going to become like the crazy Eddie where all of a sudden I got 30 years in, they're giving you a gold watch and you haven't moved out of your cubicle. So I think that there's like a fear of that or is there an idea of one day that like if I work hard and I prove myself worthy, now all of a sudden I get promoted and fast-tracked and now I'm out of a cubicle into a corner office, let's say. Yeah, I think a lot of people are are stuck in that that fear. Um, yeah, how to describe it? I think a lot of people... Yeah. A lot of people don't love the the work that they do. I think they've, they've built a story around, you know, well, I can't, can't quit or I can't, can't change things because bad things are going to happen. You know, I need, uh, you know, the status or the the money and it just sort of everyone's stuck in their, their comfort zone um, in that way. And they're, they're not, you know, in those cases, they're, they're stuck in their fear. I think in many cases, rather than seeing that fear as, as a cue for learning and growth, you know, uh, for someone who is deathly afraid of changing their job, you know, what is that fear telling you? What is that fear uh, signaling that you may learn uh, in this particular situation? It may be that you need to, you know, show up in a different way at your, your current job and, and stop playing it so safe. It could be that you need to step out and try something new because that's what you really love. And that's where your, your real passion is. But I think a lot of people just get stuck in their their comfort zone and shy away from the fear rather than leaning into it. We met a lot of gym owners that were sick of their nine to fivers and then attended a, a weekend seminar and then or were part of a successful gym and said, I could do that. And then yeah. went out and pursued that and realized, oh, shit, this uh, work. I think every everybody should have the opportunity to chase their dream at some point now. Uh, and like whatever that looks like. I mean, I, I saw it in a million different ways. Like we would go and teach seminars and people were like, I'm going all in on this thing. Like I want to, you know, fitness and, and performance and this, and they want to open a gym and, you know, have people. And like, that's the reality. And I, I've always told people whenever they ask me, do you think it's a good idea? And I think if you have a, an itch you want to scratch and there's something that you want to do, and this is your passion, I think everybody should at least chase it one time. Uh, you know, regardless of whether or not it, it, uh, you know, crashes and burns or becomes overly successful. Like um, years ago, uh, I this is a fucking hilarious story about me, but um, my older brother is uh, pretty successful, does um, like uh, insurance for like large, like construction type stuff, like, uh, you know, huge excavators and cement and does all this uh, construction insurance stuff out in California. And uh, he made a, a fucking smart ass comment that he thought that uh, selling insurance and doing that was much more difficult than playing in the NFL. He's got to show up and beat people up. And, you know, it's actually running a business and that. And I, so I said, fuck you. And I uh, went and got an insurance license, put money down and opened my own brokerage. So I ran, I had an insurance brokerage one off season and uh, actually ended up uh, writing uh, commercial construction loans for people that were building dream homes down in Mexico. So it was like this total product that this guy that I know was basically refining people's homes, letting them pull out equity and then was putting them into construction loans so that people could build their second home dream home down in Mexico on some land. And so I came in and wrote all the insurance for it. And it was amazing when we would go to Mexico and we would go meet with these people that would show up. They would like show up and I used to call it dirt in a dream that they would like stand on this hilltop with these like sticks around this like little piece of dirt. And they'd look at these pictures and they'd get this like glassy eyed that like, I'm going to own a house here and we're going to look out and wake up every morning and see the Pacific ocean. And I saw hundreds of people with what I call dirt in a dream. Now, whether or not they actually got to the finished product was another thing. 
but like the amount of people that were willing to leverage everything for the idea that they're going to have this house in Mexico, that they're going to be able to wake up and see the ocean. It was like too many to count. And, um, it was super fascinating. And then football season started and I basically shut it down and proved to my brother that, uh, you know, fucking selling insurance is a lot easier than playing in the NFL. But it was, uh, it, it was amazing to me how many people like got to this point in life where they had worked and done everything and they had this dream and somebody, you know, made it possible for them to have this dream. And Pete, I remember one guy asked me, like, you think it's a terrible idea? And I'm like, no, I think that everybody should chase their dream one time. Now, I don't know if I would le- lever my whole existence and my family and my kids' college and, you know, all, you know, the idea of retirement on it, because I've seen people do that all the time where they're, yep. you know, cashing out 401ks and this to sink into a terrible business venture. Um, but uh, I think everybody should have the desire to chase their own dream. Like, um, you know, and we saw this all the time with people, like I said, uh, at the seminars, like would always ask me, do you think this is a good idea? And I would always tell them the truth and being like, if you want to work 70 hours a week, uh, probably not make any money in the first year, um, fucking never take a vacation. I think the gym business is great for you. Uh, if, if any of those sound awful, I don't know if it's the greatest thing or you have to find partners to share the load. But there were a lot of people that were like owner operators, one employee. I mean, it just was a really rough existence. And I think the people that have done well have found a way to kind of like spread the, spread it out a little bit, hire coaches, hire this and, you know, backfill with people that have strengths where their weaknesses are. And those are the people we've seen that have been successful, which is similar to any company. Um, you know, I mean, there's all, you know, like, in the startup world, people wear lots of hats. And then as the company grows, all of a sudden people kind of find this is what I'm good at. And you kind of push them into that direction. and You kind of bring on more hats. Yeah, I love that. I've got a question for you in a sec, but I, you know, you're making me think that, you know, it's not enough to just make one decision like, hey, I'm going to leave my job and start a gym. Um, you actually have to make a whole series of decisions with a learning orientation as you go. So you may make that, you know, initial leap which is great. But if you show up and you're like, well, now I, you know, am stuck in fear and not, you know, continuing to learn and surround myself with, uh, you know, knowledgeable people and listen to my customers. If you're just, you know, very bullheaded about it, uh, you're probably not creating the conditions for your success. So I think you have to, yeah, make that initial leap, you know, don't get stuck in your fear, but you have to continue that as you go. You have to keep learning. As you go, I'm, and I'm curious, you know, it seems like you've, you've found ways to step out of your comfort zone quite a bit. Um, you know, what, what life experiences have helped you do that? You know, it sounds like the NFL experience was, was core to that, but you know, you're doing that quite consistently. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm, I'm constantly searching for different ways to put myself at a, at a disadvantage. So like I, I wrote a blog years ago about like, I think I called it, um, I think it was what it was like, uh, always be a white belt. So I, I, I I just wrote a blog that, uh, like I'm always searching for things where like, I think a lot of people are nervous to start things because like, and, and I, I, it's funny. I talk to my daughters about this constantly, uh, where I'm like, Hey, you should try this. Well, what if I'm not good at it? And I'm like, everybody sucks. That's the definition of beginner. Like, and I think the day that you can make, uh, switch the mindset where you, like being a beginner, like, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll use the example of like uh, boxing or jujitsu or any of that stuff. Like I want to go in there and be a total white belt where I don't know anything and get choked out a hundred times or get hit with a hundred punches uh, because that first day only happens one time. 
And then the second time you come in and you have a little more experience. And so you come up like that first day to go in and suck at something only happens on the first day. And so trying to explain that to my daughters and being like, like uh, my daughter, uh, new basketball season started yesterday. So she has a new team. We went there. She was all nervous in the car. So I was like, well, let's get over there early and make sure that we're there. And she didn't know who her team was and who her coach was. And these, you know, didn't recognize any of the girls. She's like upset at me where it's like, you know, they're not here. I don't know. And I'm like, just sit back. Actually, you know what? Let's go out and shoot baskets. So we went out. We were just shooting baskets. And eventually somebody blew a whistle. And I was like, hey, there's some other girls over there about your height. Why don't you go over there and we'll talk to this guy. So we go over to the coach. Hey, what's what team is this? Whatever. And then all of a sudden within like a few minutes, everything's fine. But like the stress of this, and I was like, just start, just show up. We'll find out who who's about your height because there were some younger girls and some older girls. Like she's 10. And I'm like, okay, we'll look for girls of similar size, similar age. And then we'll just go over and make it work. And then in the car ride, she's like, how come you were like, uh, weren't more uh, like nervous about this? And I'm like, because I've done this a lot of times. I've been a beginner in many, many situations. And I've gone from being a beginner to being an expert. And I love the transitional piece of sucking at something mm. like, um, uh, you know, I, I weld and fabricate and work on trucks in my spare time. And like that idea, I, I had a, a Levi who was one of our, who was our first in, intern. Uh, he's out in California. He came to visit Texas weekend and we were rapping about it. And he, um, he bought a bunch of land up in like Tehachapi uh, up in California and like, they want to build a ranch and he's trying to like learn a little bit of fabrication. Like I got to build this. And so he's asking me questions and he said, how, how did you learn how to weld. And I was like, well, I got some trucks. We pulled them apart. I bought a welder and I was fucking awful for years until I went and apprenticed with people and I saw how other people did it. And I learned the pattern and I learned and I watched and I asked questions. And then I went out there and I sucked some more. And then I I got more and more feedback. And eventually I got to the point where everything started to look pretty good. And I started to have like an intrinsic knowledge. But unfortunately, if I had just gone to school or had an instructor or whatever, I wouldn't have had that like maturation phase of going from like I was really shitty to actually being fairly decent where you look like you could pass to like know what you're doing and um, I I saw that in football I saw it in lifting weights I saw it in just about everything I've done and I think where people really are scared is that they're scared to one say I don't know I don't know how to do this this is my first day I don't know where I'm supposed to be can you help me and get me in the right direction and I think like if 99% of the world could just get over that first part, like they would be fine for most of everything, whether it's learning to weld, drive like, um, so I've been trying to teach my daughters, they're 10, uh, how to drive a manual transmission. So like, that's a hilarious thing. Like I tried to explain it to them. I did schematics, but unfortunately until they get in there and they push in the clutch and they let it out and they feel the car move, it didn't make any sense. And I, I like I like showed them what a clutch is. I, I explained to them like I, like it, it was hilarious. And then we got in there, and I was like, push the clutch in. And then they heard the motor sound different, and I like, gave it some gas or some you know the fuel, or whatever. And uh, that idea of like them driving, and they were like, you know, I can't do this. Is awful. I'm like, this is your first day. The next time you get a chance, you're going to be so much better because all the intrinsic information that you're talking about is going to make more sense. And we just have to keep stacking these little days on top of each other. Where all of a sudden now, by the time you're 16. Think about how good you're going to be at driving a manual transmission. Uh, it's like it doesn't matter what it is. Um, like this place that you're looking at, like, I mean, building this out and everything that we've done. Like when I polished the floors in this place, I'd never polished concrete floors before. I went up and I got a polisher. I talked to the dude for 10 minutes. And I was like, just give me the basics. Tell me the order of operations. 
and I'll fucking figure this shit out on the fly. And I did. And I'm like, uh, and like 99% of like, whether it be wrenching on trucks, welding, fabrication, whatever, uh, a big part of it is actually just going and doing it, figuring out your mistakes and being skilled enough to admit when you don't know what you're doing and ask for help. But like, I think where people fail is that they're so like petrified of not being good at something. And so petrified of being like that, you know, girl, like my daughter yesterday. Um, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, none of the, you know, like all, all the fears that she had are like, that's a microcosm of like the world's fears. And I just explained to her, I'm like, we're going to go there. We're going to get there a little early. We're going to look to see who, who's about your size. And then and we'll wait until somebody blows a whistle and we'll shoot baskets until the meantime. It might be right at six o'clock. It might be six Oh five. And it was at six Oh six that do blew the whistle. And then at the end of yeah. it, she's like, Oh, I talked to a girl. She was on this other team we played against and everything was fine. And, uh, and then she started bitching that her shoes were too small, which is totally fine. Because I asked her, I was like, oh, she was putting the, the shoes are too small. I'm like, did you try your basketball shoes on from last season before we went out today? She's like, no, why would I do that? I'm like, all right. So now we got to get you new basketball shoes. Like, like all of yeah. these little things, like, uh, like for me, I would have been like, hey, I'm going to go play basketball. Let me see if my shoes still fit. Like these are all things that I would have thought about for her. Like, you know, and so it's uh, – uh, whether it be, you know, learning to weld, whether it's running a podcast, whether it's running a business, it's all this other stuff. I think if people were like, Hey, I have this idea. I want to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? Like uh, Jeff Gonzalez called us yesterday and he's interested, uh, or he got approached about running a podcast. And so all the questions that he asked were because he sees, you know, Hey, you guys have 575 podcasts and you guys have a podcast studio in a room and you guys have a producer and this, I mean, you know, editing and you have all these pieces. And I think that there's a sphere that his podcast day one has to be like this. And I tried to tell him like, dude, our first hundred, maybe 150 podcasts were four dudes huddling around a microphone with a trash truck unloading all day. And I'm like, it was fucking awful. We couldn't hear. We didn't know how to do this. There was no video. I'm like, they were dog shit. But we just evolved. And so, but we didn't know any different. One, because I didn't listen to podcasts. And two, nobody was doing really dope shit with it. So, like, we had this opportunity to really suck. And it was okay because everybody sucked. And then all of a sudden, you have Joe Rogan and Million Dollars and Spotify and podcast studios and everybody's kicking ass. And now all of a sudden, the thing got fucking picked up a notch. And then all of a sudden now people that are still here feel they have to be here. And I'm like, you still have to go through the beginner phase. You still have to suck. You still yeah. have to do this. Um, it's like, uh, you know, my favorite analogy was when they were talking about Dave Grohl or Dave, Dave Grohl. They were like asking him like, hey, you were in two of the biggest rock bands, like both in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You were the drummer for Nirvana and you were, you know, and obviously the Foo Fighters. And he made a funny point where he's like, you know, uh, you know, the idea that you have to go on American Idol and, you know, this is how you become a star. He's like. Honestly, uh, you get some instruments with your buddies, you, you suck in the garage for years, and next thing you know, you're Nirvana. And it was such like a funny deal where he's like, nobody wants to suck. But unfortunately, like those moments where you get booed off stage and you're not good and you realize, like, I got to pick my shit up, like that piece, of whether you call it shame or not feeling like you're, you're good enough or not getting the response you need, is what pushes you. You know, like, um, and I, I, dude, I I have three kids and I tell my daughter this constantly. Uh, If you just search in life for things that you're good at, you will never be happy because there'll there'll be no, like, and she, and my my one daughter's hilarious. She's like, I just want to go and play a whole bunch of sports and just find whichever one I'm really good at. And then I'm just going to do that one. 
And I, I'm, I like, I hear that and like my fucking head explodes and I'm like, no, that's not how it's going to work. And if you, if, <laughs> yeah. if you're just searching for what you're good at, you're going to search a lifetime and you're never going to master anything. Every person that was, um, you know, a black belt master or this, or, you know, uh, uh, you know, business person, like look at, you know, Elon Musk, for example, like failures, like everybody has this, like this failure because through the failures and through this like maturation process is how you, how become, you become an expert. expert. And that to me is, uh, is like the teaching experience for, for kids. But when people ask me like on skill development or how'd you get good at this? I tell them all the time. I'm like, dude, I was really shitty and I just yeah. was not okay with being shitty but I was also okay with doing the work to be better. And, um, you know, like with the welding, I told Levi, I'm like, you're going to weld. It's going to look awful. Just go get a grinder and grind everything. And you'll get really good at grinding. And about the time you get really good at grinding, you'll be a good welder. So every welder that I've met is really good at grinding. Why? Because they sucked at one point and they had to grind their welds. And then you get to the point where like, now I'm the Michelangelo with a cutoff wheel. I mean, I can fucking do anything with a cutoff wheel and a grinder because I was so shitty. And now I have this skill set that I developed that I don't have to grind anything anymore because the welds look good. Yeah. Yeah. I love that on so many levels. One, I, I've got two girls who are six to nine as well. And that's, you know, with my nine-year-old in particular, I, I, I'm having a lot of the same conversations with her where it's, it's okay that you're not good at something. You know, I think it's, it's just, it's very common or it's just a, a human reaction to want to quit or just, you know, not do things you're good at, but to persist in that, you know, sucky phase is, is just core, I think, to uh, just being, you know, uh, well balanced, you know, happy human being. But it's it's amazing how perhaps uncommon it is. But I think that uh, has everything to do with the relationship that we have to our fears. You know, it sounds like, like you found a way to um, just embrace that, you know, that that discomfort. And uh, I think that's the super important. I think if uh, if you're not doing something that you're a little scared of. Um, I like, I, I don't search, like I don't, uh, search for safety. Like I'm constantly looking for things like where I feel like out of place. Like I always want to show up to a party and be like, fuck, I totally shouldn't be here. Like I'm totally hitting outside my, you know, like uh, outside my coverage in so many ways. Like, God, I can't remember who I had the pot or, or what I read, but I was trying to read like up on like the psychology of why people fear not being good at something. And, uh, it was the same reason that people fear uh, people not liking them. This is kind of wild and whether or not you buy into this or not. But there's like this inherent, uh, somewhere hardwired within us, there's a desire to be accepted by the group. And the reason had to go with like, uh, when we, you know, evolutionary, let's say we were, you know, designed to live in these small kind of communities. If people did not like you, then you were not allowed to be in the group. So therefore you had to like exist on the other side of the wall away from like safety the fire protection or whatever, and that you wouldn't survive outside the wall. So there's this feeling that in groups that you have to create this dynamic where people like you so that you're accepted. And the idea is because if you're not accepted, then it would lead to your eminent death and lack of survival. And so the same thing with like, uh, then they took it a step further and said the reason that people fear not being good at something is because if you are not good, then you are not considered a contributor. Like uh, if I go out and I hunt, which this happened to us, we went out and uh, went hunting with Bert Soren, and I missed uh, like an easy gimme shot on this pig. And so much so that I heard the shot hit the – I thought it hit the pig. It must have hit the ground because I didn't even – I literally reloaded so fast to try to take a shot at another pig, took another shot, and I thought – and I, I knew I didn't Missed hit that, that one. too, yeah. Yeah, no, I missed that one. 
But I like <laughs> I took the first shot, reloaded, and was trying to get a second pig, having no doubt in my mind that I didn't drop that first one. I mean, I heard the shot hit. And then we went out there, and there was no pig. And I was like, holy shit, dude, I'm so embarrassed. I totally missed this shot. And it was a gimme shot. And uh, I mean, like maybe like 145 yards, and he's shooting like a 300 short mag, which is like, I mean, should be a laser beam out to 600. And uh, th- there was no reason to miss this shot. And like that feeling of like, I don't want to be a beginner or I don't want to be suck at something because then I can't contribute. And if it's even as something as being able to shoot, I don't want to shoot because what if I miss, we don't eat kind of feeling. And uh, the psychology was that like people are scared to start things or there's a fear of being a beginner because you're not going to be considered a contributor and, uh, you know, accepted within the group. And I remember reading that and being like, you know what, fuck that. Like, like uh, everybody has to start somewhere. And I think if you're going to be good at something, every person that was ever a master was once a beginner. And some people come to certain things yeah. at, at, at other points in life. Like, uh, you know, I found this at six years old and I've been doing it my whole life. Okay, great. You've had more opportunity to be better. I find it at 40. All right, am, am I supposed to be as good as a four-year-old or am I supposed to be as good as a six-year-old? And I think like that feeling of not belonging or, um, you know, not being accepted by the group is why people don't ever really acquire new skills because they don't want to be considered not part, yeah. not, not a contributor. Well, that certainly prevents a lot of folks from beginning yeah. weightlifting, joining CrossFit gyms, and how, starting to how like, many people, take their health seriously. How, how many people we run into that are like, I don't want to like, like I'm nervous to lift weights. I'm going to be weak. And like, I'm like, well, everybody's fucking weak. And or, I told yeah, this, everyone's going to be looking at yeah, no, yeah, or, or or everybody's going to be judging me. And I'm like, no, they're too busy fucking Instagramming their stupid workouts to notice that you suck. And then there's all these websites where they're basically shaking videos of people that are sucks. I can kind of understand a little bit, a little fear. But at the end of the day, I mean, like the first time I went to go lift weights, I benched 115 pounds. And then by the time I left high school, I benched 315. So I put 200 pounds on my bench and I benched 500 when I was you know, 22, 23 years old. So I went from at 14 years old, a 115 bench to when, you know, nine years later, I benched 500 plus. So I put a hundred plus or 400 pounds on a bench. Um, okay. Yeah, I was weak, but if I hadn't started that first day, I would have never got to this end piece. Yeah. Fuck. I, I wish I had a 500 bench. That's, <laughs> but yeah, I think you're making a really good point, which is the, um, yeah, just, you know, you, you said, fuck it, not going to, you know, get taken by that, um, that fear of, of failure, right? You're, you're going to, you'll overcome it. We have that power within us. So even, yeah, sure. Maybe there's some evolutionary, you know, mechanism that, you know, causes us to be a little bit more careful in, in certain situations because we need that, you know, that social acceptance. Um, a lot of that is still mediated by some belief system that we have. You know, that I need to be accepted by others in order to be successful or, um, you know, whatever it is, but just the very, you can say, fuck it, I'm not going to be taken in by that story and you can change it is that's what it takes. And you have to be able to, to, you know, notice the stories that you're telling yourself and, and choose some new ones. Well, is it because, um, I don't know, like, uh, uh, do you think like the, and then I was, I was kind of trying to relate this back to a little bit to the book and the work you're doing within companies is, uh, is the fear that people are exhibiting, uh, like, like what is like, what's the root cause? Is it a desire to be liked, a desire to fit in or a desire to nurture their inner child or, 
like, uh, or all the above. I'm just wondering, like, is there, like, when you go in and look at this, is there a root cause that people fit within this? Or is there, you know, preconceived notions or is this the point that they fit or they just kind of just, you know, their previous examples or their previous experiences push them into these places? I think it's all the above. I mean, I think, you know, our, you know, the experiences that we have in life, you know, the experiences that we had in childhood, you know, kind of shape the people we become. So, you know, if you had certain experiences and, you know, certain negative experiences in particular, that shapes out, you know, some of the fears that you bring into the workplace as an adult, you know, the way our brain works is we have um, this negativity bias where, you know, negative experiences sort of stick to our brain like Velcro. Like we remember negative experiences. So I don't know if you've had this experience where you can say, I love you to your, your wife, like nonstop, you know, every day, but you forget her birthday one time. Like she always remembers that. So it's, you know, we just have this negativity bias where we remember, you know, bad experiences and we carry them through and positive experiences are a bit, you know, they're like Teflon. We experience this real high, but it just sort of slips off and we don't remember it. So, you know, throughout life, we sort of pick up these, you know, these experiences and, so, you know, could have, you know, for me, for instance, um, I struggled to fit in as a kid, you know, as a kid and struggled to, you know, excel in sports and be accepted and sit at the cool kids, uh, you know, table at the, the lunch at, at lunch in middle school. And I think that you know, impacted, it was a very negative experience. And I, I carry that with me. And so I became really competitive as a result. I, I sort of thought, well, hey, if I can win a sports, if I can excel in school and get good grades and other things, then I would be, you know, sort of accepted. So that's, you know, some of the conditioning that I had in my life. And I carried that through and it served me, it served me in other ways. So it just depends on people's, you know, big fears, stories they built around and what, what patterns uh, they've developed. And I think people would be lucky to have, you know, a, a dad like you, John, where you, you know, you work with your daughter to help her step out of her comfort zone and to, you know, not be taken in by. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, I wrestle with this one all the time, but uh, the, I, I always wonder like, and, and I, I think like any parent, like, am I doing a good job raising your kids? And like, uh, I always told my daughters and, and my son, like my job is to prepare you for the day that I'm not there to, you know, look out for you. You have to be able to stand on your own. You have to be able to be a confident, successful, competent, you know, courageous individual. And that's my job to get you there. Uh, the one thing though, that I do, uh, so because my daughters are the first ones, I grew up with two older brothers and, uh, I learned very quickly, not only how to defend myself, both physically and verbally, because, uh, my brothers and I just talk shit all the time. And so I've actually will talk trash and like mess with my daughters a little bit. Like they like, not necessarily like their dad, but more like an older brother. Because all the girls that I met that had older brothers were all pretty switched on and could handle themselves, uh, both verbally. And the girls that I had met that were like the first child were always like, uh, not the same, but to the point where like I could meet a girl and I would know exactly if she had older brothers or not, just in like the things she would say and the way she would act. So I told my, I tell my daughters all the time, I might be your dad, but I'm still going to talk trash to you like I'm your older brother. And, uh, like to the point where my one daughter, we, we went out with some guys, uh, for an event we had and I brought my kids or just my one daughter and my son. And she's over there just like talking shit to these dudes and to the point where they were like, your daughter's a pretty skilled shit talker. I'm like, well, we've been practicing. And, uh, not that that's like, I, but I never, 
like the one thing that was important and and when I went to school uh, having had older brothers was like like I knew I was a pretty skilled fighter uh, because I'd fought my brothers and all of our friends and we started boxing and fighting martial arts when I was pretty young so I knew that uh, from the age of like six years old that it was going to be very rare that I encountered anybody on the street that could fight that would uh, be able to beat my ass and then all of a sudden I grew to six six 300 pounds and play in the NFL and I knew I could fucking handle majority of people in the world uh, but also, um, I grew up with a real smart, uh, father and my brothers are all real sharp. So like, it wasn't necessarily the physical battles. It was more like the mental and the verbal and like the ability to spar. And, you know, my older brother's a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer. Uh, my other brother went to law school, but now he does insurance. So like everybody was very skilled with not only, uh, and, and I was a rhetoric major. So like all that's kind of like verbal barring, uh, barbing and just, you know, shit talking was always very prevalent. And so it was very rare that I would encounter somebody that, uh, you know, could talk shit that I couldn't fucking match up on. And so for my daughters, that's the big one I always talk about. I'm like, hey, if somebody's going to talk shit to you, you can't run and cower. You got to fucking be able to be well skilled with your words. And uh, that's so like that's part of my deal where I feel like I have to prepare them not only for life as a parent, you know, um, uh, and not to I've, I've probably have told this before. Uh, my dad passed away a couple of years ago. And when he was going through chemo, he had cancer. My mom and I took him to an appointment and we had a couple hours to kill. So we went to the movies. Like it was just like, we'll go see anything. And we walked into that movie, Black Panther, uh, which I, I was like, oh, Marvel movie. Let's go see that. And there's a scene in there where like the dad dies and then he goes back to the spirit world and he talks to his son. He's like, the, the job of the father is to prepare the child or prepare the son for the day the father's not there. And that was like, I, I like heard it. And then when I went back and I saw, uh, you know, as my dad was going through this, he, uh, you know, he seemed real calm about everything. And I asked him, like, Dad, you seem okay. He's like, you guys will be fine. You know, your mother will be fine. Everybody, you guys have far exceeded my expectations. I'm not laying here on my deathbed worrying how you guys are going to take care of everything. You guys will be fine. I did my job. And, like, it was, it was like one of those amazing things where you see this movie, he makes a comment, and then I go talk to my dad, and he basically said the exact same thing. And uh, then as a dad, you go home and you realize, like, I don't want to be laying there on my deathbed realizing that I didn't prepare my kids well enough, whether it be physically, yeah. verbally, uh, education-wise. I, I, like, I have to be able to provide them not every opportunity in this world, but provide them the opportunities for which allow them to succeed, but not do it for them, arm them with the tools to be successful. And I think what happens all too often and what I was really uh, when I was going through your book and I was reading it, the one thing that kept coming up is, um, you know, the sins of the father become the sins of the child all too often. And I'll take that a step further with the fears of the parent become the fears of the child. And I see this with parents all the fucking time. And it drives me absolutely crazy where a mother will be like, don't get close to the water. You might drown. Right, that kid's not nervous about drowning. The mom's fucking paranoid about it. And I listen to parents push their fears on their children. And all of a sudden, the fears of those parents, my next door neighbor, same thing. Like they, they have all these fears, right? Both children of alcoholics have, and that's another one. I've realized that children of alcoholics have all these fears. Um, and they basically have laced their kids with all of these fears that don't exist to the point where like I hear it and I see it. And I'm like, fuck, man, all you're doing is basically cutting these kids off at the knees before they ever get a chance to grow. And, uh, um, the big thing I've talked to my daughters is I'm like, you know what? I might have fears, but those aren't your fears. 
And just because they're fierce doesn't mean we don't run 100 miles an hour. If the boogeyman's in the back room, I'm going to kick in the door and fucking whoop his ass. We're not going to not go in that back door. You know, if, if you're scared something's under your bed, call me. I'll crawl underneath your bed and we'll go in there together. Like that's always been my deal where like whatever the fear is, like I'm not going to let your fears be my fears and I'm not going to uh, saddle you with these fears. And, uh, you know, the idea that like we become this and, and you know, and you, you brought it up like the reason that fear and the reason that we hold on to these negative ideas and these like negative like uh, experiences is because somehow evolutionary those became better teaching moments. And I'll give you an example. We have uh, a bunch of pigs here in Texas and I, I fucking shoot a lot of pigs. And what's wild is if I shoot a couple pigs, uh, I won't see the next generation because they breed so fast. So it'll take me, if I shoot a bunch, I won't see any for a couple months. And then it'll take the next generation uh, or it'll take one or two generations to forget that they all got killed here and then they come back. And so I'll like, if, if I shoot a mom, I won't see the babies. If I shoot a dad, I won't see the young ones. And then all of a sudden I'll like, and I, I kind of know them by markings or whatnot. It'll like, they'll go away and they'll be like, no, 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 somebody died over there. They're smart enough to not come. And then they have to get another generation that doesn't know. And uh, that's been like an interesting piece of like, you know, within like the hunting deal. But uh, man, I, I'm just really, and, and there's probably never been a time, at least in our history, where we've seen the level of fear that we have going on now. And I deal with this on a daily basis, whether it be parents or whatever. And uh, the amount of fear that people have now, whether it's, um, you know, verified or if it has weight or if it doesn't is, uh, you know, is, is like we don't know because we don't know all the information. But I feel like a lot of the decisions that people are making are out of fear, out of the unknown, not necessarily fear based on what we really know. So, yeah. Yeah. All amazing points. I mean, I, I think, uh, I, I love what you were saying about, you know, the fears of the parent can't become the fear of the child. I, I do think, you know, fear is transmitted in that, that way, you know, across generations and also just across society, right. It's just, and we, we transmit it through our actions, but also, you know, just the, the stories we tell, uh, to people, you know, and I think there's, there's certainly perhaps an, an adaptive element to that, right? When you, you share stories, you kind of know what, what dangers to stay away from and, um, and all that, but it, it can be quite dysfunctional at the same time, right? When we, you know, everything's, you know, avoiding risk, uh, we actually don't let our children and, um, you know, other people we know and love to, to learn if we're constantly, you know, trying to save them from any, any risk, right? Life is all about risk. I mean, life's but about uncertainty and, like like when did we move into this because i like i remember growing up um you know and i grew up in like the 80s like i remember we would get on our bikes and my mom would never ask us where we were going we would ride we'd come back hours later yeah like there were some like it was uh it, it was so interesting and i remember my mom like asking her recently she's like i was never nervous for you guys like you guys were fine like you guys were gonna figure it out like it was uh like there was just like, and, and now all of a sudden you, I like, I'll, I'll talk to these parents that have so much fear of like the unknown and their kids and this. And yeah. I asked my mom and my mom's like, Fuck, I don't know what the hell you guys were doing. And I really wasn't that concerned with it. You guys would be fine. Yeah. Uh, like she was, um, so I, I learned to drive when I was about 10 or 11. My, like I said, my dad was a lawyer and he was kind of an old time lawyer. So he used to trade for shit. And we ended up with this like 82 Volkswagen rabbit. So I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And I'm like, that's my car. So I used to drive it everywhere, me and my brothers. And my mom was, tell, was telling my daughter the story about, uh, 
she was uh, uh, with her friend in the car and was driving behind me when I was and and, and, her, and my mom's like, I think that's her car. And then she was like, Eddie should be at practice. And it was me out driving around when I was probably like 10 or 11 years old. And my daughters are 10. Wow. So then she yeah. told the story. And it's <laughs> and uh, and then my daughter, uh, Jamie's like, so when do I learn to drive? And I'm like, let's yeah. go out and do it right now. Not like, oh, you know, making excuses. I'm like, I think you should be able to know how to drive. You should yeah. know how to drive a manual transmission. So now we've been um, working with that stuff. And like, if I tell that story to parents or of contemporaries of ours, like look on their face of horror is unbelievable and i'm like ah like yeah and they were like you're going to teach your daughter to drive i'm like yeah she's 10 years old she should know how to drive at least know how to back up the truck move it around drive it around the property and uh you know whether it be you know shooting a gun or you know like it all of those things i think are important to teach but there's this idea that like somehow the fear our worst fears are going to become realities uh, if we expose them to it, but I just I just don't buy into that because I didn't grow up like that. Like yeah. like like in and uh, the more and more that I'm around other parents my age, like I listen to them manifest these fears in real time, and I'm like, fuck, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about right now. Yeah, I had a very similar experience growing up where I you know after school my mom would kick me out of the house, my brother and I, and. She'd just say, go play. I don't care where you go. Just, just get out of the house. You know, <laughs> we would be, you know, whatever, eight, you know, nine, 10 years old. And they just say, just go, you know, for hours. And we'd go wherever. Yeah. Drink out of hoses. And, like my, my kids, like yeah, what you guys do for water. I'm like, you could stop at somebody's house and drink out of anybody's hose. Nobody yeah. got mad at you. If you came out and you saw kids drinking out of your hose, they never said a single word to us. Like to the day, if I came, if, if the neighbor kid was drinking out of my hose, I'd be like, perfect. Make sure you get some, you know, uh, but it's, and like, I hate to fucking always go back to this, like, oh, it was so much better because it's such a different climate. But I wonder if like the transfer of information through the internet has made, you know, and, and here's the thing, like, um, I was, and I've told this story too on the, on this podcast, so I'll tell it to you, but, um, my neighbor's like 92 years old, right? Uh, he's had like cancer, diabetes, he's just had COVID twice, like nothing's going to kill this old man. He'll probably outlive all of us, uh, but he's got a uh, a bunch of goats. So um, the goats are obviously pretty stupid. So he has these uh, Antolian shepherds, which are these big badass dogs that take care of the goats. They're not they're not uh, um, like pets. Like they don't have names. He just like throws them out there, and like their entire existence is to herd these goats and take care of the goats. They sleep out with the goats. Like it doesn't matter if it's a hundred degrees or negative forty. Like that's what they are. Like, and I, like, I don't even think they have names because uh, I always ask him, he's like, well, there's a big one and there's a littler one. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, one day we were out there, uh, took the trash out and I was sitting there with the kids in the little, in our side by side. And I was, we were just watching the goats and I asked the, uh, there's probably about, you know, 30, 40 goats and there's two dogs. And so just, uh, like the goats were kind of moving and you could see the dogs stand up and it was pretty interesting because they, uh, uh, they wanted the goats to move to like the other pasture. So the dogs start barking and they run as fast as they can at the goats and the goats get nervous and then they move. And that's how they push them to pastures. Not like they don't let the goats wander. They start barking and they start moving and the goats get nervous and then they push them and that's how they corral them. And so I said to my daughters, I'm like, did you you guys see that? Did you see how the dogs get the goats to move? And they were like, no. I was like, they stand up. They run as fast as they can barking at the goats and then the goats lift their heads out of the grass they see the commotion and then they move away from the commotion. And I was like, isn't that a pretty good analogy for what happens in our society? 
people have their fucking faces stuck in the grass in the phone and they don't move unless there's something barking and running in their direction. I'm like, this is a, you know, and I had this like amazing teaching moment for my daughters about like life and this <laughs> analogy and this like, you know, this idea of, uh, is that a parable? Uh, yeah. Parable story. Yeah. Like story, uh, of this, of like these Antolian shepherds moving these goats and the whole thing. And so like, we're like watching it. We had this, like, were you sharing this as the parable? Yeah. Me sharing this but as the parable. Actually happening is, is it's not a parable. It's a, moment. it really fucking, it's a moment. Okay. So, and then the, the funnier part of it is like, I'm having this incredible moment. I feel like I'm a fucking dad and I'm teaching my kids about life. And then just then the big goat goes over and he puts his nose like right in like the little goat's ass and starts putting it in. And they're like, What's he going to do to that goat and rears back? Fucking Twizzler dick comes out and literally starts pounding this little goat and then like shakes his leg and just falls off. And I'm like, like everybody's real quiet. And I'm like, all right, we'll talk about that time next time. <laughs> like drove away <laughs> where I like had this great moment. And then the goat just basically banged the other goat. And my daughters are like, what's he doing to that little goat? I'm like, we'll talk about that next week. Ask your mom. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. Uh, that's a great analogy for life. Just like you think when you think you're hanging out, you're going to get banged. Uh, but yeah, I was yeah. like, we'll talk about that next week. But man, like I, um, I'm so amazed. Uh, and I'm sure you are too. Like when you go in and you work in these companies or whatnot, the fact that like people are making decisions based on fear, not necessarily in their best interest or the, or, or the collective's best interest. Mark, we, we have Unfear transform your organization to create breakthrough performance and employee well-being. If people want to pick up the book, where do they go? And then where can they find you on social? Yeah, you can pick up the book on uh, Amazon or um, any, uh, any bookstore, but just look for Unfear. Uh, you can find me um, on LinkedIn or you can go to my website, uh, cocreationpartners.com. That's cocreationpartners with no, no dashes. And you can get more info. Awesome. And if you're Appreciate in the, the the DMV, check out CrossFit DC. You're traveling through. I know a lot of drop-ins in that very transient town. You got a good community, excellent coaching staff, and very beautiful facilities. Mm-hmm. I know. We miss you, Tex. I'll be back to just burn everything down. <laughs> over awesome. Overanalyze and critique and just bring some awesome. fear back. I was going to say you were going to push all your fears on people. Oh, yeah. I like it. Big time. That's what I do as a coach. That's that's it. Awesome. Mark, thank you very much, dude. It's great to catch up. Yeah, man. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. See you guys. See you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Mark Manukas on Instagram at M-M-I-N-U-K-A-S. That's at M-Manukas. Until next time. Bye.